0: Please turn in your Bible to First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. First Peter two thirteen. Uh, the holidays are approaching, and it's a time of year when many of us spend time with our extended families, and uh, you know the rules about that, right? Uh, if you want to have a happy, harmonious Thanksgiving with extended family, what are the two subjects you don't talk about? Yeah, you don't. Yeah, you don't talk about religion and politics. And you definitely don't want to have a conversation that intentionally mixes the two, because that, where you're talking about both at the same time, that would be terrible, right? Well, having reminded you of that, let me now introduce you to what we're going to be talking about today: religion and politics. Uh, in First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen, we're going to talk about uh, how the Christian uh, interacts with the government of whatever nation they live in. And I'll be candid with you: the reason I'm doing this is this is the Sunday after an election day, and the last time I preached on this subject was during a presidential election complete with COVID and mask mandates and the atrocity that happened to George Floyd and the foolishness of wanting to defund the police, and it just felt like it would be nice to preach on the Christian interacting with government uh, when the waters were a little bit smoother. And I'm sure if you're following politics, there's always trouble, so it may not seem like smooth sailing to you right now, but Uh, As a pastor, looking back on the last time I taught, I thought it would be good to bring this up and good to bring it up not in a presidential election year to talk about it. And before we read what Peter says, I just want to give a word about the context of where we've come in this letter. Uh, Peter uh, is writing to the church in Asia Minor, churches in Asia Minor, and the section of this letter we're parachuting into to use today has a very specific uh, context Um, Christians face all kinds of various and different opportunities, challenges, and circumstances. And this portion of his letter is all about shining the light of Jesus into whatever unique situations you face as a Christian. So, wherever God has you, your goal should be to shine the light of Jesus in the unique circle of relationships and opportunities that you have. Whether your family life is happy or difficult… Your goal as a Christian should be to shine the light of Jesus in your family. Uh, Whether your job is one that you enjoy or kind of hate, your desire should be to shine the light of Jesus in the workplace. Uh, Whether you're thankful for the country you live in and its form of government, or you live in a country with a very corrupt government that's oppressive, your goal should still be to shine the light of Jesus as a good citizen of the nation you live in. In fact, the verses that lead up to what we're going to read from Peter uh, are 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, which I actually believe are the theme verses for the whole letter. In those verses, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly desires which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation." That's really the theme of Peter's letter. If I had to preach on those verses this morning, I'd probably entitle the message, Lifestyle Evangelism, uh, because they're about adorning our message with good works. Uh, But I've entitled the verses we're looking at today, citizenship evangelism, because our behavior as citizens of the nation we live in, that's part of our collective witness to the watching world. That's part of how we adorn the gospel. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to make a confession, and the confession is this. This morning, I'm going to build a really big porch for a small house. I'm going to have an introduction that's longer than my normal introductions, but I'm going to do that because I think there's a lot of confusion among Christians uh, about the relationship between the church and state. For the first 300 years of church history, the relationship of church and state was very straightforward for the Christians. It was very simple. The Christians were the minority in a majority pagan culture that often ridiculed and persecuted them. Uh, and they, their understanding of their relationship with government, as taught by the apostles, was that Christians were to submit to civil authority. They were to submit, even though the governing authorities were corrupt and in many, ta- in many instances wicked and pagan. That's what the apostles taught. But things became more complicated in the 300s after the Roman emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, and uh, very quickly, the church and government became, became intertwined, and you can even find statements both from on the government side and on the church side speaking of the church and government as if they are interdependent, connected entities and not separate entities with separate governments and separate missions. And that flawed view of the church and state prevailed long after the fall of the Roman Empire into the unholy marriage of the Roman Catholic Church and the Holy Roman Empire. For over a thousand years after the fall of Rome, this intertwining of the church and state was just the norm in Europe. Now, as a church family, we are profoundly thankful for the Reformation. In fact, we just celebrated Reformation Sunday a couple Sundays ago. But we understand that our Reformation heroes were flawed heroes. They they were men just like us. They they commit sin, they had errors in judgment, and one of their flaws was continuing to co-mingle the relationship of church and state. After the English Reformation in in the English-speaking world in England, the English Puritans continued to co-mingle the the authority of church and state, and ironically, some of them even had to flee England uh, because of the way the state-run church was doing things. They had to flee England to set up their own colony in the New World, and when they set it up, they again commingled church and state as seen in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Now, by God's grace, there were notable exceptions during this period, right? Uh, For instance, during the 1500s, when the Reformation was going on, there were uh, notable groups of Anabaptists who believed that the church and state were separate entities and their authority should be kept separate. Uh, During the 1600s, one of my favorite um, personalities in colonial history is Roger Williams. Roger Williams was kicked out of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and he founded Rhode Island. Uh, He taught that land should be purchased from the Native Americans at fair market value, which is why Rhode Island is so small, and the Native American tribes around Rhode Island, they respected him for that. He wouldn't put up with anybody cheating the Native Americans in his colony. Uh, He was actually one of the first abolitionists in American history. He advocated for liberty of conscience, which was his language for what we would think of as religious Freedom. Uh, he believed that it wasn't the, the role of the government to punish citizens for perceived violations of the first four commandments, which in the Ten Commandments, the first four relate to our, uh, our worship of God, our relationship with God. He did think there was a place for government to um, punish violations of the last six commandments in the Decalogue, which are the commandments about how we relate with other people, theft murder, you know, those things. He, he thought the government should get involved in that, but not the first four, not, not issues relating to the worship of God. And William's views laid a foundation and to some extent were incorporated into the Constitution of our United States. The church and state really are distinct entities. They have distinct missions. They have different governments with different uh, qualifications, for holding office, and you can see that in Scripture. Uh, first of all, one of the differences between the church and state is they have different origins. In the Bible, you see the origin of government in Genesis nine and 10, excuse me, in Genesis ten and eleven, uh, with the creation of the nation state. But you have to wait until Acts chapter two, which is thousands of years later, for the creation and origin of the church on the day of Pentecost. They have the church and state have distinct beginnings. Second, the church and state have different realms over which they rule. You'll remember that when Jesus was with Pilate, he confessed that he was a king, but he was a king over a different realm. Pilate represented the government of Rome, but Jesus is king over a spiritual realm. Third, the church and state have different missions. If you want to read about the mission of the government, you can read Romans 13. 1 through 7. If you want to read about the mission of the church, you can read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, which we're going to get to in the new year. The mission of the government is to keep order by punishing those who do evil and praising those who do good. Government has been ordained by God to restrain evil in the world and to be an avenger uh, who brings punishment on evildoers. In contrast, the mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel help disciple and build up those who are already following Christ, and lead people in the worship of God on the Lord's Day. One of the reasons that I believe in the separation of church and state isn't because I believe their marriage somehow corrupts the government, it's because their marriage corrupts the church. When the two are married, the church often loses itself in political causes instead of focusing on proclaiming the gospel. The main objective of the church isn't improving the social order, it's the salvation of men and women through the gospel. D.A. Carson rightly summarizes, when the church forsakes her primary task of preaching the gospel to engage in political enterprises, her true mission is lost. Now of course as Christians we do seek to influence the culture for good in, in the limited ways with the limited means we have of course we uh, we take our theology into the voting booth you know let's be honest about that we we vote our conscience and yet we're not trying to take over the government we're not trying we're not on a mission to take over the government and then use the legislative branch of the government to moralize the unconverted with laws Instead, we're trying to convert the immoral through the message of the gospel. That's our mission. With that in mind, then, let's read our text for today, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter says, "'Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right.'" For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as freemen, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Back in the 1970s, uh, there was a band named The Clash, and they sang a hit song, I Fought the Law and the Law Won. And they didn't realize how uh, theological their song actually was. Uh, in the heart of every person is rebellion against authority, both the authority of God and the authorities God has instituted. Rebellion is the primal energy that plunged the world into sin. Just to be clear, uh, clear to bring clarification about our anthropology, what we believe about mankind, we don't believe that people happen to rebel because we're sinners. We only happen to commit sin because deep in our hearts we're rebels. We're rebels against God. We're trying to ignore Him to live life our own way according to our own rules. And you can see this rebellion. It's very easy to see. You can see it in the toddler who throws a fit when she doesn't get what she wants. You can see it in the employee who chafes at the boss giving him instructions, even though those instructions are well within his job description and clearly for the good of the company. And rebellion even amongst Christians, even amongst those who would follow Jesus, it often rears its ugly head in our attitudes and in our words about the laws of our own country. I thought the law should be the humble confession of every Christian. We still struggle to live under the civil law. But there was a second phrase in that song by The Clash, and the law won you could argue that the biblical story is a story all about God's loving authority. It starts with rebellion against God in the garden, but it ends with every knee bowed and every tongue confessing Jesus as Lord. Praise God. In the end, His loving authority will win. Now, as Peter instructs us about civil authorities, he gets very pastoral. He understands that, uh, he understands how human nature works. He knows that within every single one of us, we want to carve out this territory for ourselves where we could feel like we're submitting to God even while disobeying civil authority. But that's delusional. And so, he, he knows this as a pastor. He knows people are going to say, I don't have a problem with God's authority. I just have a problem with human authorities. But he won't let us make that separation. He won't let us make that distinction. Peter is calling all of us to actually look at human authority as instituted by God as a good thing. It is a protection for us, but that's seldom how we look at it. We often view authority as an obstacle in the way of our our freedoms. But as long as sin still lives in us, we need restraint, and we do need some accountability. We need to admit it. We need some accountability. We need some restraint. We need laws that protect us and guide us, and we need people to enforce those laws. If you can humbly acknowledge that you're a sinner, then you also have to acknowledge that you still need the accountability that civil authority brings into your life. In fact, uh, this isn't in my notes, but I am going to go down this rabbit trail. Um, This actually gets us into a larger conversation, not just about civil authority, which is the main thing we're looking at today, but just any authority in general. One of the things that's in the air we breathe, or at least in public conversation right now in America, is the Marxist idea that all authority is oppressive regardless even a teacher's authority over students or a parent's authority over a child. But when we think about authority, I think there's three things we need to say as Christians. First of all, authority is incredibly bad. It's a bad thing when it's abusive, which is why we believe that no authority should be practiced without accountability. Uh, and let me give you a, a couple of examples of the ways that uh, both in, in the uh, non-Christian world and then even in the church, we've set up accountability for our leaders, okay? Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we have elders who lead the church, and we practice plural elder leadership, which means when I go to an elder meeting, even though I'm the pastor, I get one-fifth of the vote because we have, we have five elders total. I get 20% of the vote. The other elders, they're, they're very encouraging to me, they're very helpful, but they also keep their eye on me. I'm accountable to them. And as an elder board, you could say, oh, well, okay, fine, Pastor Chris, that's accountability, but what if you guys just have a good old boys club? Well, the answer to that is we also practice congregationalism, where elders have to be affirmed to three-year terms. Uh, We have authority, uh, we have uh, accountability both with you, the congregation, and with each other on a leadership team. Uh, In the civil realm, uh, we've built authority, our our nation, that is to say, has built authority into the office of president. We have a free press. The the president has to, he has to watch what he does, watch what he says, because we have a free press. The president has to be elected, and even if the president is elected, they're not elected as a temporary four-year tyrant because we do have a means by which the president can be impeached if he participates in things that are evil and would disqualify him from office. So, we need to say this as Christians. Yes, we agree with the concern out there in the world that abusive authority is incredibly terrible, it's incredibly bad which is why we believe all authority should be practiced with accountability structures. However, we also want to come back and say that authority, when it is practiced in a good and loving way, is incredibly good. It creates a safe space for all who live under that authority to thrive and flourish. And we need to say a third thing about this, not just about abusive of authority, not just about good authority, but we also need to say this, that as Christians, we believe that even flawed and imperfect authority is better than no authority at all. We don't believe in anarchy. I'll get, let me give you an, uh, an example. Uh, government has been instituted by God as a good thing, and we know that, and one of the reasons we know that is because as Christians, we've read the book of Judges. We've seen what anarchy looks like, do you remember the book? Of, like, no pastor wants to preach through the book because it's so ugly and it's, all the stories are so dark you don't want to bring those into the pulpit. Why? Because every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was an age of anarchy and all kinds of violence and perversity and atrocities happened during the time of the judges. Civil authority is a good thing. And so, Peter is going to elaborate on this command he's given to submit, verse 13, uh, by explaining the extent to which we should submit to the governing authorities, the reasons for submission, and he's even going to give us some practical applications. Uh, Let's look first at the command to submit. Verse 13, Peter says, "...submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution." In Greek, that command to submit is taken from the military realm. It has to do with rank and willingly coming under authority. Um, As a concept, it's related to the New Testament concept of obedience. So, to use that illustration, uh, when you're in the armed forces, if your commanding officer gives you uh, a command, what do you do? You, You follow the order, unless it's a Hollywood movie, and then the protagonist disobeys orders right and left. I, I've never served in the armed forces, I'm just a civilian, but the ways that our protagonists in action movies disobey orders right and left and get away with it, nobody even talks about it. I mean, it's just kind of farcical. And, and you need to understand that the, the whole idea that dominates this paragraph is the idea of submission, obedience to God-given authority. That's the picture of submission in this passage. As Christians, then, our posture towards government is that we submit to the governing authorities. We're not out for a political revolution. We're not out to plot uh, some kind of uprising against the government. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. As Christians, our posture towards government is that we submit to authorities. Now, as I preach this, I know that you're probably thinking about, but what are the exceptions? And I say that, you know, both culturally and autobiographically. Culturally, we are a nation of uh, rebels and individualists, and everybody thinks they're the exception to the rule. But even autobiographically, I anticipate that you're probably thinking that, because when I studied the passage, the first thing I was thinking when Peter says submit is, well, but you've got to tell me the exceptions, Peter. Certainly, there must be exceptions. Tell me what they are. And he doesn't tell us what they are in this paragraph, but the rest of the Scriptures teach us what's the one exception to not obeying the government. Well, the one exception in Scripture is when the government commands you to commit sin. For instance, in Egypt, the Hebrew midwives refused to commit murder by throwing infant boys into the Nile, infant Hebrew boys into the Nile, as Pharaoh had commanded. Daniel's friends refused to commit idolatry by worshiping Nebuchadnezzar as if he were God. And even the apostle Peter who wrote this paragraph, Peter himself went to prison twice for disobeying the governing authorities because the, uh, the Sanhedrin commanded him to quit preaching the gospel. And before the Sanhedrin… He was very clear about his motives and what he was going to do. He even asked them whether it was right to obey men rather than God. And so, Peter himself paid the price for disobeying government because in that one particular instance, they were asking him to disobey God. So, the very apostle commanding us to submit to government, uh, he lived out the exception to that command. But notice that Peter doesn't bring up the exception here. And I can't help but speculate that for Peter… Uh, The exception to submitting to government is so rare, that's really not what he wants us to focus on. What Peter is emphasizing then in this passage is the rule that regularly, ordinarily, most of the time, we're going to submit to government because government asking us to commit sin is a rare occasion. And note the extent in this passage to which we should submit. Peter says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him. So, when Peter says every human institution, he's referring to every level of government, and he even gives us an illustration from the Roman Empire. Uh, There's the emperor or the king, but then in the Roman Empire in Peter's day, that emperor or king would send out governors. He would appoint governors for the various provinces of the Roman Empire. And to bring that into our context in America, uh, what it communicates is this, Um, you should submit to every level of government, so whether it is federal or state or you live in a a city or county, uh, federal, state, local, obey the government. We don't get to pick and choose which levels of government we obey. And then the language of every human institution, it also covers the different branches of government. So, we might bring it into our own situation this way. Submit to every executive order, every law passed by the legislature, every decision of the courts. That's the extent of the command to submit. We don't get to pick and choose which levels or which branches of government we obey. We submit to every human institution. Now, admittedly, that is a hard command to obey, or to at least obey uh, Perfectly, It's hard to obey because, on the one hand, we're rebels at heart who are always looking for a justification or an escape clause that would justify what we want to do, but it's also hard to obey because all human governments are so imperfect. Um, consider for a moment when Peter wrote this letter. When Peter wrote this particular letter they had probably the worst roman emperor of the entire first century nero was the emperor at this time and nero's reign over rome it could be summed up in three words his rule his leadership could be summed up in three words corruption irresponsibility and tyranny and i would like to add to the list arson Many of many of the uh, Romans believed that he not only failed to try to put out the fire that burned Rome, there was a, a theory going around making its rounds that he actually started the fire because he wanted to burn out that section of the city so he could claim it for himself and build a palace, which is what he did in the aftermath of the fire. And so, when Paul, uh, excuse me, when Peter writes this and it's read to the congregations in Asia Minor. I would love to know what some of the people in those churches thought of this. And I say that because, understand this, people who were Roman citizens in those churches, they prized their Roman citizenship, and they prized good government just as much as we do. We, have this, we look back on uh, uh, more primitive people, and we think they must not have cared. They cared about good government, and during one of the worst emperors of uh, their generation, Peter writes this, and I would have loved to have seen what they thought about that because he gives the command while Nero is on the throne. I think about it from the perspective of an apostle. It must have been like bad timing. Really? I have, to, I have to tell him to submit while Nero's the guy? Couldn't we just wait for a, a more effective ruler and then I'll tell him to submit? Uh, but that's, that was the situation. And, and to bring that over into our day, we need to say this. Every human government uh, through all of history has been corrupt to one degree or another. No government has ever used every tax dollar for good. In fact, you could argue if you just dig in history deep enough, you can find situations where every government has used tax dollars for evil purposes. Digging up dirt on the government and digging up dirt on political figures, it's not hard. It isn't hard to do. It's easy, but it can't be a justification for us disobeying the law. The only biblical justification is if the laws are requiring us to commit sin. And again, I I confess this is hard, And so, I think we're going to need some reasons to obey, and Peter's going to give us reasons here. Why should we submit to government even when those governing authorities can be so corrupt? And even… here's the one that drives me nuts. They can be so hypocritical, right? They pass laws and none of the burdens or consequences of that bad law are going to touch them because they they live above it. Maybe they live above it because of their wealth. Maybe they live above it because of their status in society. So, why should we submit ourselves? Well, the first reason that Peter gives is in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Have you ever been in a relationship where someone asks you to do something, and you argue with their logic for for doing it. And then they say, but would you do it for me? Have you ever? I'm looking out. Most of most of the husbands are shaking their they're nodding their heads. Yes, yeah, I've been, I've been asked that. Yes. Well, that's what you that's what you have here. That's what Peter is doing uh, through the Holy Spirit. The first reason we submit to government is for Jesus' sake. The gospel is not just a set of historical truth claims about Jesus we believe, the gospel is a person we follow and that person wants us to submit for His sake. He asks you to do it for Him. He has His reasons for why He's asking you to do it, and He even shares some of those reasons in other portions of Scripture. Uh, But first and foremost, He's asking you to do it as an act of love for Him and for the furtherance of the gospel. In Romans 13, Paul said, There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by Him. Does that trouble you? Does it bother you that the text claims that God establishes authority? Well, when Paul says that, he's not claiming that every authority figure will be godly. He's making a theological statement. And I think the good news is this, God can use any leader no matter how ungodly for His own purposes. God is the one who raised up King David and put him on the throne. God is the one who raised up King Cyrus. God doesn't need a godly king or or president or legislature to accomplish His agenda. Uh, God raised up the pharaoh of the Exodus, Amenhotep II, if you don't mind. It wasn't Ramses. That's theological liberalism claims it's Ramses. I'm not even going to go down that rabbit trail. They do it to deny other things the Bible claims later on in history. We won't go into that today. But uh, God raised up Amenhotep II, who was an evil king, and in Exodus 19… He even tells everybody why He raised it. He had a purpose. And if you go back and you read Exodus 19, one of the things you'll find when God shares His motive for why did I do this is that the be-all, end-all from God's perspective is not politics. It's just not politics and all the laws that go on governing a nation. God has other things in mind. He's accomplishing other purposes than just political purposes. Um, and, And I think that we need to remember that because I know for me, I can get very emotional about what happens in elections, and as I uh, considered what Peter says here, and, and I went back and I looked at Exodus 19 before I used it as an illustration, it just sort of gave me the impression that God doesn't get as emotional as I do, right? I just wonder if God shrugs off the elections that happen among mankind like we shrug off whoever won the soil and water conservation director election in Spotsylvania this last Tuesday, right? I mean, they're just not. It's not like God is sitting back there and saying, how did He get elected? Oh, that throws a wrench in my plans. That's just not what God is doing. I can't help but think that God's attitude towards whoever is elected president goes something like this. I'm going to accomplish my plan, and I'm going to use you to do it, we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. Right? God is just not limited by human rulers. In fact, He uses them. And so we can submit ourselves for the Lord's sake because we know that He is King of kings and Lord of lords and providentially uses the political arena to accomplish His will on earth. We can trust Him. We can submit for the Lord's sake. The second reason we're to submit to governing authorities is found in verse 15. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men." In every nation, there are uh, individuals and political parties and religions who, because of their own idolatries, view Christians as some kind of threat to the common good. Uh, An example in the Bible would be in Acts 19, Demetrius the silversmith, he started a riot Uh, in Ephesus, and he accused Christianity of being a threat to the political unity and prosperity of Ephesus, which was built on the worship of Artemis. Uh, Nero blamed the burning of Rome on Christians simply because they were a politically weak minority uh, and an unpopular minority as well, and so they were an easy target to blame blame shift, uh, to scapegoat on in the first century in Roman circles. Christians were seen as a threat to the unity of the Roman Empire because they wouldn't worship the Caesar as a god. There have always been foolish men who, because of their idolatry or maybe because of their ignorance, accuse Christians of being a threat to the common good. But when Christians submit to governing authorities, when we pay our taxes, when we're peaceable, we show the world uh, that that's not the case, and we it has a way of silencing slander. And so, I think Peter has a public relations concern on his mind when he gives us this command to do good in the silver sil, uh, civil realm. Uh, and I think what he's saying here is reminiscent of the command God gave the Jewish people who went into exile in Babylon. If you remember in Jeremiah 29, 7, God says, He tells those Jews, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. In other words, don't disdain, don't look down on the government or the nation or the state or the city you live in. Here's how you relate as a citizen of heaven in exile to the place where you live. Pray for your nation, pray for your town, seek its welfare because how it goes for your town is going to be how it goes for you. And what Jeremiah taught the Jewish exiles, I believe Paul teaches something similar to the rest of us in the New Testament when he tells Timothy, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet, uh, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We submit to government for the Lord's sake, and we submit as part of a larger ongoing effort uh, to do what's right and silence people who slander Christians. And as we do what's right, we pray for our government as part of how we seek the welfare of the nation we live in. And so having established the command, its extent, its reasons, I believe Peter then gives us a couple of application points in verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, Peter says, "'Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil,' But use it as slaves of God. Now, there's a play on words here that Peter is using, and it has to do within the Roman Empire. The, it has to do with the difference between free men and women and slaves. Uh, the Roman Empire practiced slavery, and many historians believe that up to 30 or 40% of the Roman Empire in Peter's day uh, were slaves. And Peter is addressing those who aren't slaves by basically saying something like this. It's wonderful that you're a free man or a free woman. It's wonderful that you have your rights as a Roman citizen, that's a great thing. But now, don't use that freedom as a cloaking device for evil. Don't use that liberty to do evil things. And uh, instead, instead of doing that, voluntarily serve as a slave of God. Now, telling someone to do that, serve God as a slave, that's kind of counterintuitive because all of us love our freedoms, and the idea of being a slave is repulsive and revolting to us, and rightly so, but in Scripture, there are times where we're invited to voluntarily become slaves of God or slaves to righteousness for a higher purpose. Let me illustrate one of those just from common everyday life that was in the Old Testament. In the book of Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom, in Proverbs 12, 11, Solomon says this, about farmers who own land and grow crops. He says, quote, "'He who makes himself a slave to his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless pastimes lacks sense.'" In other words, the diligent farmer voluntarily makes himself a slave to his land, and he gives up his freedoms to focus on tilling that land and raising that crop, but his slavery fulfills a higher purpose. He feeds himself, he feeds his family, and he sells the rest to the community at market. And you have a similar higher purpose here. Voluntarily serve as a slave to God, and don't use your free status as a cloak for evil. That's the first application. And then the second application is interesting. It gives us a hierarchy of relationships and goals to have as we think about those relationships with other people. Verse 17, honor all people love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So, first of all, let's go through them in order. First of all, honor all people. The word honor can also be translated legitimately as respect. And this means if you're a free person, give respect, treat with honor uh, the various slaves that you meet who are below you in the social ladder. Um, In our context, we would say, Whatever social ladder you climb, whatever uh, status you go in for, uh, don't look down on people who are below you, at least in your estimation of whatever status is. Treat all people with respect. Don't, ta- don't talk down to others. Respect all people. Second, love the brotherhood. In other words, have a special love and care for fellow Christians. Give them priority. Uh, maybe we could illustrate it this way. All of us in here are committed to the idea we want to see, we're advocates for every child on earth being uh, well-fed, having basic uh, health care, and being educated. And we, many of us, uh, give to Compassion International, we do the shoeboxes. We want to see every child cared for and fed. But you give special attention and special priority to your own children, right? You you help them first. Uh, there's a priority there, and the idea here is take responsibility first and show priority for your fellow Christians. Love the brotherhood, and then third, fear God. And there's a contrast here. There's both a contrast and a command between fearing God and honoring the king. First of all, don't fear the king. Fear God. If you end up fearing the king, you'll end up treating him like he's the one with all the power. And that's just not the case. Uh, God is king of the kings. He is the all-powerful one who calls the shots, so fear God first and foremost. But then Peter uses the same word he used for what we're supposed to do with all people for what we do towards the king. Just as we're to honor all people, we're also supposed to honor and respect the king. In other words, be respectful to the king because he's part of the all people that Peter just talked about. Now, why would Peter do that? Why would Peter tell us that we also need, in in addition to honoring all people, we need to make sure that we honor and respect the king? Answer, because in every generation, there are people who like to run down their political leaders, behind the political leaders' back. They're not trying to get their head cut off, but there's always people who like being disrespectful of authority figures behind their back. Uh, In every generation, people lampoon their leaders. You can find disrespectful, insulting, offensive cartoons about each and every president in the United States, no matter how effective they were, no matter how good of a president they were, we have cartoonists, political cartoonists, who lampooned them. Uh, and so the idea here is don't be part of that. Don't be part of dishonoring or being disrespectful to the president, to, to political leaders. Don't be like that. Speak respectfully as the king. of the King as part of your goal to be respectful to all people. So, our passage then ends with this encouragement, not only to submit to governing authorities, but to respect governing authorities as part of the way we respect all people. And again, I would say, I confess, this is a hard command to obey, but I want to give you uh, another comfort. It is a temporary command. Uh, As I was preparing Uh, This sermon, I came across a quote by C.S. Lewis that was a great encouragement. He reminds Christians, there are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. Our ultimate political hope is that Jesus is coming back. There is a day when God will put an end to the misrule and mismanagement of mankind. And when the final emperor comes, he is the emperor who laid down his life for his rebellious subjects. He's not power-hungry insecure, or a tyrant. When He returns, He will set all things to rights, He'll make all things new, and eventually He will reverse even death itself. But until He comes back, our Lord commands us to submit to imperfect governing authorities for His sake and to show them the same respect. Let's pray.